the Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Not an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky team, Mr. Sam. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Now, when a virus comes along that's spreading like a plague, and POTUS and his lackeys have been nothing if not vague, well then you've got to trust the CDC and listen well, unless you to bid our free society farewell There is a super bad transmittable contagious awful virus and if we don't act quick and social distance it will mire us in a stretch of quarantine that lasts until July a super bad transmittable contagious awful virus and if you got a better cough in your arm and if you got a better <coughs> now back in 1918 influenza had its run but half the docks were busy overseas with world war one today we have mass media and scientists to say if you don't want this virus well then stay six feet away super damn important that we practice isolation because we are asymptomatic while it's an incubation will overwhelm our hospitals if there's not mitigation it's super damn important that we practice isolation if we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. If we don't do it, then we're all gonna die. And so I hope at last you'll take this lesson here to heart. Cause it's already scary and we're only at the start. If you get bored, just think of the immunocompromised. Who can't go much of anywhere unless it's sterilized. Oh, super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. If we don't act quick and social distance, it will mire us. In a stretch of quarantine, the last until July. A super bad, transmittable, Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Super bad, transmittable, contagious, awful virus. Hey, welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the second hour of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. I uh, guess this hour is uh, from Columbia University. He's the uh, author of a, uh, a new book called Born in Blackness, Africa, Africans, and the Making of the Modern World, 1471 to the Second World War. His name is Howard French, and he joins me by phone. Hi, Howard. Welcome to the show. Good morning. It's good to be with you. Hey, it's great to get connected. Um, Howard, I, I want to ask about what's significant about this particular time frame, 1471 to the Second World War. What, what made that the, the starting and ending point for what you wanted to focus on in this book? 
Well, so um, the starting point is that um, I have reframed the beginning of the age of exploration as we understand that term. Uh, and understanding, I think, is will be familiar to most of us from our grade school or secondary education at, at a minimum, is that um, the modern age begins when a couple of exploratory feats uh, occur um, from Iberians. Um, depending on the version, one of them is Columbus discovering, quote unquote, discovering the Americas. The other one is um, uh, Portuguese explorers reaching Asia by sea for the first time. Um, and this supposedly sets off the modern age because it connects the world in new ways that, that unleash all sorts of new energies and dynamics. Um, 1471 uh, is uh, significant enough to be included in the title of this book because, in fact, it is for, in 1471 that something that I argue was the true initiator of the modern age that took place, and that was the discovery in what is the modern known nowadays as the state of Ghana in West Africa, discovery by the Portuguese in that year of enormous amounts of gold, uh, which the Portuguese began very quickly to trade for. Uh, and this is the culmination of uh, actually several decades of exploration of Africa by the Portuguese, maritime exploration of, of Africa by the Portuguese, which are completely cut out of traditional historical uh, accounts of how we arrived at modernity. In most of these accounts, Africa is described as merely a, an obstacle that needs to be sort of circumnavigated in order to get to Asia. And we discover, we meaning Westerners, discover the Americas by accident. In fact, um, beginning in the early 15th century, meaning in the early 1400s, a Portuguese prince named Henry, who we later came to know as Henry the Navigator, was obsessed with finding a maritime route to the underbelly of West Africa, where it was known, for, for reasons I'd be happy to get into, that um, the world's greatest store in wealth in the form of gold was known to exist. Okay, so that's the first uh, piece of your question, the early date. Uh, the second date is because uh, the Second World War is sort of the high watermark of, of the final great migration of Africans that marks, I think, in the most profound of ways to modern age. So the first great migration of Africans is a familiar one, the, the, the transatlantic slave trade, when 12 and a half million people were brought in chains from Africa um, to the so-called New World to work on plantations, a term that I'd like to sort of deconstruct later in this conversation, but let's keep it simple for now, in growing sugar and cocoa and coffee and indigo and rice and finally cotton. Okay, um, in 1804, um, on the island of Hispaniola, uh, an uprising by enslaved peoples uh, defeated France after having previously defeated Spain and England, the three, in other words, the three greatest imperial powers of the age. Enslaved people beat all three of them. Uh, and the defeat of France in 1804 at the culmination of this Haitian Revolution um, cost France so dearly that France had to sell the Louisiana Purchase to the Jefferson administration. And this opens up the vast interior of the United States. It gives to the young United States all or part of 15 states. And most importantly, it opens up the Mississippi River Valley to, um, co to commerce, but especially to cultivation of cotton. And cotton becomes, I think, uh, the second most important engine of modernity after sugar, uh, in that it is the most important economic product of the United States through the first half of the 19th century, 
by far the United States' greatest export, and it is the sine qua non ingredient of the Industrial Revolution, because the Industrial Revolution, which begins in England, is based on the, 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 the textile, the, 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 um, the manufacture of textiles, the cotton textiles, and the cotton was sourced from this slave labor. So why the Second World War? Around the time of the Second World War, a variety of innovations take place in, in machines that are able to pick cotton. And because um, cotton is now able to be picked much more efficiently by machines than by human beings and by, formerly by slaves, uh, enslaved um, African Americans, um, the South um, stops trying to retain its black population um, and keep them in peonage in sharecropping arrangements throughout the, the cotton-growing areas, and African Americans begin to migrate all over the country, most famously to Chicago, but in fact to every corner of the United States. And so this is the third of three great migrations, first from West Africa to the Americas, secondly from the Old South, meaning Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, to the Mississippi River Valley, and then finally from the Mississippi River Valley uh, in this final migration to Chicago, to Los Angeles, to to Boston, to Washington, et cetera, et cetera. I want to go back and talk about gold. How how was it learned that that gold was in that part of Africa in abundance? And and I want to ask a couple of things about that and how you want to approach it. Howard is is completely up to you. But was gold kind of the original precious metal? What what gave it value, and did it have the same value to the people who went there looking for it as the people who were already there? So gold has been the most um, widely accepted and prized store of value in human history, almost in every part of the world at some point or another, wherever it has existed or been found to uh, be traded, gold has been prized. And, and the reasons for that are, are in some way, to some degree speculative, but one of them is that gold doesn't tarnish. It's an inert metal. It doesn't tarnish, it doesn't rust, uh, et cetera. And so that uh, gold also has this luster to it um, when it is pure enough. And finally, it's highly malleable, and therefore it can be um, made in, into jewelry and to other sort of objects of, of, um, of sort of luxurious uh, design. Uh, I said, finally, um, there's one more piece to it. Gold is relatively rare among metals. And so if you combine all of these things, this made gold over the ages, almost everywhere in the world, to be uh, a precious item. Um, why did the Europeans come to see West Africa as a storehouse, as a sort of unimaginably rich storehouse of gold, uh, starts out uh, the, prior to the century of Henry the Navigator, in other words, the 14th century. In the early 14th century, in uh, the year 1324 to be precise, the king of a large empire in West Africa known as Mali set out on a pilgrimage to the Middle East, first to Cairo and then to Mecca. This was a Muslim ruler in this age, in the 14th century. And he, he, he traveled by camelback 3,500 miles from his capital to Cairo with an enormous procession uh, bearing 18 tons of gold. No one had ever seen anything like that quantity of gold ever in the possession of a single individual. And here shows up in Cairo uh, this king from West Africa 
with 18 tons of gold in in uh, in his bag. And uh, this ruler's name is Mansa Musa. He figures on the cover of my book, um, and he begins to dispense gold in acts of patronage, uh, extraordinarily um, uh, profligate, in a profligate way, uh, meaning very generously, everywhere he goes, to people high and low. And so this creates uh, uh, a legend. And legend is a tricky word. It might, it might connote for some people myth, but news of Mansa Musa and his wealth then spreads quickly into Europe. First of all, he gave out so much gold that the price of gold in Middle Eastern markets collapsed for 10 years. Uh, nobody had ever seen so much gold on the markets before. Word spreads to Europe that there's this African ruler uh, that is in possession of such uh, fantastic amounts of gold, and map makers begin to try to, um, based on little bits of information from people who had traveled into the Sahara, begin to try to piece together a picture of where he exists. And the most famous of the maps that resulted from this is called the Catalan Atlas, which is in the design of my book's cover. Um, and this is what fires the imagination of the Portuguese, who were a very young and very poor kingdom uh, in Iberia, to try to find a source of wealth that could allow them to stand up against the Spanish, first of all, but also to sort of become a player in Europe. Uh, and so this begins a, a multi-decade pursuit by sea of gold in West Africa, first under Henry the Navigator, and he finally dies, and but, but his successors continue it until finally it culminates in 1471 with the discovery in Ghana. Your final piece of this question has to do with were there differences in values between Africans and Europeans about the nature of gold or the worth of gold or the economic role of gold. Um, uh, Africa is a very big space. Today it's divided into 54 countries. It's hard to make a coherent statement about Africans this or Africans that, so I'm going to resist approach to this answer. The, the Mali Empire... And, 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 and along the way, Howard, please feel free to yeah. teach me how to do it better. Oh, sure. We're doing a great <laughs> job. I, I not, this is not a criticism of your question at all. Now, the Mali Empire... Which, whose predecessor was the Ghana Empire, had an experience of trading gold via intermediaries across the Sahara Desert into Europe for centuries, since the 8th century. So we're talking about the 14th century when this map gets created. Um, since the 8th century, the Malians had been trading gold. They knew that Europeans prized gold and that they could obtain over the Sahara, they could obtain goods from Europe via their gold wealth. But in other parts of Africa, places that were more isolated from global currents, such as Ghana, where the, gold, the Portuguese discovered gold in 1471, they had not previously really been connected in any direct way with another continent uh, in trade. And so the Ghanaians didn't uh, primarily see gold as a currency, so to speak. They saw it as a prestige item. You wore jewelry. Uh, you put it into the design of objects and things like that, but it wasn't such a monetary store. And so the, the Europeans come, the Portuguese first, totally obsessed with gold as a, as a, as a, as a monetary object, as How a species, so to speak. Uh, Howard, yes. I, I hate to interrupt, but I have to take a short okay. break here. I want to talk about this some more. Can you stick around for a few minutes? Absolutely. Great. My guest is uh, Howard French from Columbia University, talking about his book, Born in blackness about Africa's influence on European expansion and global development. We'll take a short break. We'll be back with more right after this. Everybody's doing 
it on a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. Do you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative, whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom Say, objection. Hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just, um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. 
Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. And welcome back, everybody. We continue uh, my conversation with Howard French from Columbia University about his book, Born in Blackness. Howard, welcome back. Thanks for sticking around, and sorry to make you sit through all that. Oh, my pleasure. Um, The book, Born in Blackness, uh, Africa, Africans, and the Making of the Modern World, 1471 to the Second World War, talks about Africa's influence on European expansion and global development. Was that influenced by designation or resignation? Uh, It was influenced by participation. Uh, The first influence uh, we have already discussed, which is um, the uh, uh, placing of Mali on the map of global history by its pilgrimage to Mecca uh, and to Cairo. This was an act uh, organized and carried out by Malians themselves. It was not something that somebody did to Africa. Uh, The second um, act uh, that I would uh, enter into this category of commission uh, or, or participation was even though it is a brutal one that involves um, uh, the exploitation of Africa, is involves the labor expropriated uh, oftentimes violently from Africa uh, uh, to be put to use by Europeans in the growing of commodities. And the growing of these commodities truly changed the world economy in profound ways. And I think and argue in the book uh, constituted the most important reason why Western Europe and subsequently the United States diverged from the rest of the world in terms of wealth and power. Um, So to explain what that means in in detail, um, in the early 1500s, on a little island called Sao Tome off the coast of Central Africa, uh, the Portuguese begin to grow sugar for the first time uh, in an industrial way. And they're doing so uh, via uh, slave labor, the labor of Africans taken from the mainland and put to work on plantations on Sao Tome. I'm saying plantations, but I want to be clear to your readers or listeners, I'm sorry, that plantation is a euphemism. We use it commonly about the United States as well in our history. Plantations are actually prison labor camps. You have captives who are imprisoned and who are being treated in violent ways uh, at the end of a lash in order to extract labor from the Portuguese create and perfect a system of so-called plantation labor on Sao Tome, which then just within a few years transits the Atlantic and, and is implanted also by the Portuguese in Brazil. Brazil is, of course, a vast territory. Uh, in Brazil, and then subsequently on a number of islands in the Caribbean under the English, uh, sugar plant, sugar production becomes so lucrative that the wealth extracted from slave labor and the growing of sugar surpasses all of the much more famous wealth that the Spanish acquired uh, in the mining of gold and metal in South America and in Mexico. And so I said gold and metal, I meant gold and silver. Um, We know about the Spanish and their famous galleons and the stories about how this fueled the rise of Spain as the major uh, imperial power of its era in the 16th century, our famous school tales of our our high school education. But the role of sugar wealth in the propulsion of of European economies is far less clearly told. Um, 
And in fact, Brazil, slaves in Brazil produced more wealth for Portugal than Spain acquired in its precious metals. Subsequently, on the little tiny island of Barbados, which the English took over in 1630 and began growing uh, sugar with slave labor there, uh, little Barbados, one-third the area of Los Angeles, uh, one-sixth the size of something closer to home where I'm speaking to you from, New York City, Long Island, one-sixth the size of Long Island, um, 800,000 slaves brought to Barbados over a couple of centuries produced more wealth for Britain than did all of the gold and silver carted out in the Spanish galleons by the Spanish. Um, this wealth didn't just um, propel uh, European societies in terms of filling their bank accounts, so to speak, but the provision of these commodities changed culture and changed social life in Europe. They created a cheap and abundant new source of calories for the first time in the European diet that allowed British people first and then subsequently other Europeans to work much longer work days. Earlier, uh, prior to the exploitation of African labor, um, uh, potable water that was hygienic and safe to drink was a scarce commodity in Europe. And so it, during the work day in England, people drank ale because ale had been brewed. It was, it, was, it was hygienic, even though it made you drunk or gave you torpor and made it hard to sustain your productivity. Suddenly, with African labor, coffee and sugar are available, and people are drinking non-alcoholic beverages that are stimulating for the first time in, the, in, in their lifetimes during the workday. This is a rocket fuel for productivity in England. Finally, uh, the last thing, and I could add many other things to this list, but the last thing I'll mention for now, as coffee and sugar become available and change the workplace, another industry is born that fundamentally changes European society, and that is the coffee shop and out of the coffee shop, the newspaper industry. People discovered that uh, entrepreneurs discovered that people sitting around drinking coffee in taverns instead of ale wanted to understand and to discuss the news of the day, what's happening in their society. And they, people figured out in the 1640s and 50s how to sell newspapers for the first time to this kind of captive, caffeinated audience. All of this grew out of slave labor, that labor stolen from Africa uh, or from Africans placed to work, put to work on these plantations. And it is this news culture, of course, that anchored the um, blossoming of English democracy, and so, and which we have inherited in the United States. And so a commission or, or, or whatnot, this is, these Africans were participants, were vital parts of all of these developments that have been written out of this history. How did the economy of the so-called southern plantations in the U.S. compared to these other slave-driven economies? And, and how is it that the U.S. is so remembered for that period of our history? Um, so uh, sugar was the primary commodity in terms of um, value, in terms of trade, and in terms of volume uh, for uh, a period of centuries, from the 16th century to the 19th century. At the end of the 18th century, the United States, after Haiti uh, achieves, as Haiti achieves its independence from France, and slaves are moved from the eastern part of the United States into the Mississippi Valley, cotton becomes a gigantic product in the United States. Slaves are clear land and begin planting uh, as a matter of force, are forced to plant cotton throughout the deep 
American South. Um, this takes off. There have been few economic booms of this of this pace and volume anywhere in world history, uh, starting from almost scratch uh, from in the 17, late 1780s, early 1790s until the till the Civil War. Um, uh, the the rate of growth of cotton production is is uh, looks even more phenomenal than let's say the growth of Apple, uh, the, the company Apple, Silicon Valley. It just goes off the charts. Um, and uh, this was the primary motor of American economic expansion in this age. Not all of the American economy was directly involved in growing of cotton, of course, but banks and insurance uh, companies in the North and land speculators and railroads and one thing after another were bound up in the secondary effects of this growth and, and boom in the cotton trade. And so the final piece of your question is why is why is why do we associate um, slavery so deeply with cotton, or why do we associate American history so deeply with slavery? The first piece of the question is um, the United States, as the most influential country in uh, since the Civil War, uh, the rise of the United States into preeminence in world history begins not very long after the Civil War. Because of that, what happens in America is going to be a big part of the world story, no matter what corner of the world you find yourself in. And if you are an American, it is very tempting, it is very easy to believe that the only things that matter in the world are the things that happen in your country. Uh, and so these are reasons why the American story, in terms of economic growth and development, the economic history of the world, the history of slavery in world, the, the role of slavery in world, world history, the American story begins to take on this extraordinary weight. And how is it that that Europeans were able to establish and maintain dominance? Dominance in what sense do you mean? Well, I mean, we're we're talking about uh, part of part of your book talks about Africa's influence on European expansion. Why is mm -hmm. is Europe? able to expand and in many cases um, dominate in the regions that they expand to well europe was europe becomes rich europe diverges a verb that i used earlier in our conversation from other centers of world civilization that had that had long records of being wealthier and more powerful than europe so who am i talking about for many centuries prior to the modern age east asia and Southern Asia, meaning mostly China and India, had been far wealthier uh, than Europe. Uh, for long strings of centuries, the Islamic world uh, excelled in economic performance and scientific endeavor and in other areas far beyond Europe. So what caused the divergence? How did Europe begin to split off and separate itself or put distance between itself in terms of its performance in wealth and power from these other parts of the world? My book makes the argument that slavery is overwhelmingly the most important answer. Uh, those other parts of the world did not expropriate the labor of, of another entire continent and put that labor to work for its benefit in the way that Europeans did using African labor uh, in the New World to grow commodities on its behalf. And so this is the most important reason. I'll give you one more little piece to the answer. Uh, I use the term the West in uh, my book quite a lot, 
And this term, the West, is something that crops up in ordinary conversation in the United States and everywhere in the world without people really thinking terribly deeply about what do we mean by the West. I want to give a functional definition here to what the West means. As I understand and use the term, the West means a kind of condominium, a kind of alliance, a kind of deep relationship, integration between North America and especially Anglophone North America and Western Europe. And I will argue that it is African labor that made the create, didn't just produce all these commodities, but made the creation of the West possible. How do I, what, how could I, how could that be, right? Here's the answer. Up until 1820, four times as many people were brought across the Atlantic to the New World from Africa than from Europe. Let me pause and repeat that. Until 1820, four times more Africans were brought to the New World than Europeans. It was those Africans who were almost entirely enslaved, who cleared the lands, who dug the ditches and canals, who lay, who who, who leveled roads, who uh, uh, irrigate, who created irrigation, who planted crops, who harvested crops, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It was this African labor which made the New World viable for Europe prior to the independence of any New World countries, and it, it's. So it was this African participation which was the glue that bound the West together and allowed the prospect of new wealth creation that didn't just make Europe wealthy, but also made eventually, of course, America wealthy. You know, you talk about uh, European expansion uh, being done so and and benefiting from... um, basically utilizing a labor force from an entire continent. But Africa is a huge continent. And as you pointed out earlier, Howard, 54 countries, there are multiple regions that, you know, we hear referred to. One of the most common phrases that I hear is sub-Saharan Africa. Um, Mm -hmm. Was it the entire continent or were there parts or regions of Africa that were most used in recruiting labor for the slave trades? Uh, Sure. Um, So uh, I'd answer the question this way. Um, Of course, when you look at a phenomenon like slavery, uh, one one would expect that certain points along the West African coast were more intensely involved in the trade of slaves than others were. Uh, and just to use the names of modern African countries to help us situate ourselves geographically, the places that were most heavily involved in the slave trade, where overwhelmingly largest numbers of Africans were, were sourced from, so to speak, were the countries of Angola, the country of Congo, Nigeria, and Ghana. Okay, so if you just use those four places uh, to mm-hmm. kind of do a, a differential analysis of where slaves come from, my guess is you'd get you you would arrive at a number of seventy five eighty percent of all the slaves across the uh, across the ocean came from those places. This is a back of the envelope calculation. Um, however, there's another way to look at this. Uh, slavery, uh, the slave trade over the course of its four centuries came to involve literally every part of the continent. I'm talking about the Atlantic slave trade. There have been other slave trades, by the way, for that involving Africa. Uh, the Atlantic slave trade even came to involve East Africa, which geographically would seem to make the least sense because East Africa is 
is is so much further away from the Atlantic and from the New World than is West Africa. But the most, uh, I think, most impressive way or the most um, valuable way of assessing the impact of slavery on Africa or how widely slavery may have involved place peoples all across the continent is this. And that is that in the, eight, in the 19th century, the, the present-day scholars and demographers estimate that Africa's population, total population for the entire continent, may have been about 100 million people. Uh, it is estimated that when one combines the number of slaves brought to the New World who made it there alive, and the numbers of slaves who died in the process and never, never even made it aboard a ship, that this, in, that this amounts to about 20 million people. 20 million people from Africa died as a result of Europeans seeking to trade for slaves in Africa. So if you take, and, mo and the peak of that mortality, as with the peak of the volume of slaves that were being traded across the Atlantic, was also in the late 18th century or early um, 19th century. So here's where, wh what that leads us to. Out of 100 million people, not all 20 million of them died at one time or in one, even in one century, but a very large volume of them did. And so this gives you a sense of the, the way Africa was impacted by the slave trade. 100 million people, total population from Africa, meaning from, North, from Egypt to South Africa, from Kenya to Senegal. Uh, and over the course of essentially two centuries, uh, because that's when the overwhelming bulk of the slave trade took place, uh, 20 million people died from the continent because of the effects of slavery. So that's one out of five Africans. Wow. When you uh, coined the phrase for the title of the book, Born in Blackness, um, what, do, what do you mean by that, Howard? Um, I mean two things by that. Um, you know, I don't. I'm going to use the word art and or artist in a moment, and I, I want to. Uh, I want to apologize to the readers. I don't mean to suggest that uh, I'm an artist, but I do want to say that artists you very often don't like people to ask what their painting means or what <laughs> how to interpret how to interpret their novel. So in some sense, this is what this question involves. Uh, but I'm going to I'm going to meet you halfway and say that. I think Born in Blackness um, uh, offers up two immediate interpretations. One of them is fairly obvious, and the, the obvious one is that uh, it was the extraction of these human resources from Africa in an intense way at a particular point in history that made a decisive change in the direction of Europe and subsequently in the creation of the West. And so these things were born out of this black population. The second thing is, uh, born in blackness, a bit more obscure, is black in our usage in English, in the English language, uh, and I'm not speaking here in racial terms, I'm just speaking as an adjective, that things black is uh, associated with horror. I don't mean black people, I mean the color black. And so born in blackness also may connote to you that our modernity was born of horror born of horrific processes. Uh, and these horrific processes are the ones that I've just described to you, whereby one-fifth of an entire continent was led to death in the pursuit of economic development on, for the benefit of others. Uh, 
Howard, why is it important for us to have a better understanding of this particular period of history? Well, uh, there are countless reasons for that. Um, one really immediate reason is that there's a lot of discussion at this moment in American politics, um, a very often ugly language, about who the real people are, or who the real Americans are, or who did who <laughs> made the real contributions to American development and growth. I didn't write this book to participate, uh, certainly not in any direct or conscious way, in a contemporary or ongoing political um, uh, debate, like uh, as you might hear on, on on cable news. But these debates are ongoing in cable news and in much of our society. And so it is important that we understand, in fact, that as wonderful and as noble as some of the elements of our of our conventional history are, meaning the fantastic stories of our founding fathers and the wonderful virtues of democracy and, and all of the uh, devotion to liberty and things like that uh, that we can find in our history, as wonderful as these things are, there are many other things that were enormously important to our emergence and to our wealth and to the nature and course of our history that that have been ignored and are much harder to look at because they're painful and they're grim. Uh, and so this leads me to the final uh, answer to the question, and that is um, to be human means to wonder why you're here and how you got there. That's why we send astronaut, astronauts into space. That's why we have an incredible telescope out there right now that's going to try to figure out the origins of the universe. You can't be human without wondering these sorts of things, I believe. And so because this aspect of our history is so unexplored, unacknowledged, I think delving into it in the way that I have tried to do, shedding light on the parts of it that have been held into, in darkness for so long, is a way of helping us all be more human together. Howard, I feel like we're just getting started and our time is up, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Do you have a website, Howard? I do, Tom. It's howardwfrench.com. Again, howardwfrench.com. Uh, and uh, my book's available in all the normal places. If you uh, like to go to bookstores, uh, I love uh, to hear those sorts of stories. Independent bookstores, I think, are an invaluable resource to to us as Americans. Uh, if you like to buy books online, of course, I won't hold that against you either. Uh, share the news. Go to a bookstore. They don't have the book. Ask them to order it. If you buy it online and read the book and enjoy it, please share a comment there. Um, uh, all of these ways of participating in in, in, in awareness of the book are, are very helpful to me as an author and appreciated, I think, and will be appreciated by others. Well, Howard, thank you so much for spending this time with me and the listeners this morning talking a little bit about the book, Born in Blackness, Africa, Africans, and the Making of the Modern World, 1471 to the Second World War by Howard W. French from Columbia University. Howard, thanks again, and uh, keep up the good work. I've really appreciated the conversation, Tom. Thanks so much. All right. Take care. You too. We're going to take a uh, short break, and then uh, when we come back, 
we're going to pay tribute to, uh, it is in fact uh, Martin Luther King Day, and we're going to pay a little tribute. We're going to hear some of his uh, I Have a Dream speech and more to pay tribute to Dr. King. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila, tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all-night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. It's a major factor in dancing like a retard. May cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. 
alcohol may cause pregnancy, and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila! From the Tom This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I have the pleasure to present to you Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. Five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand today signed the Emancipation Proclamation. This momentous decree came as a great beacon light of hope to millions of Negro slaves who had been seared in the flames of withering injustice. It came as a joyous daybreak to end the long night of their captivity. But 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. 100 years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal.
and the crooked places will be made straight, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. This is our hope. This is the faith that I go back to the south with. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. With this faith, we will be able to transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. With this faith, we will be able to work together, to pray together, to struggle together, to go to jail together, to stand up for freedom together, knowing that we will be free one day. Sweet land of liberty of thee I sing, land where my fathers died, land of the pilgrims' pride, from every mountainside, let freedom ring, and if America is to be a great nation, this must become true, and so let freedom ring, from the prodigious hilltops of New Hampshire, let freedom ring, from the mighty mountains of New York, let freedom ring from the heightening Alleghenies of Pennsylvania. Let freedom ring from the snow-capped Rockies of Colorado. Let freedom ring from the curvaceous slopes of California. But not only that, let freedom ring from Stone Mountain of Georgia. Let freedom ring from Lookout Mountain of Tennessee. Let freedom ring from every hill and mole hill of from every mountainside that we are in the when we allow freedom ring, when we let it ring from every village and every hamlet, from every state and every city, we will be able to speed up that day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics will be able to join hands and sing in the words of the old Negro spiritual, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty.
moments that we make for you and me. We don't have to feel so sad. There's blessings in disguise. Right behind those sleepy eyes, we are safe. Alexander Zanjic, don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 